0: Welcome and thank you for joining me for Ghosts of Arlington, Episode 23, Paul Bearers of the Unknown. Last week, I had the amazing once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to walk the plaza of the unknowns at Arlington National Cemetery and place a single flower over the marble marker of America's unknown soldier from World War II and Korea. Now, you might be thinking, what's so special about that? Every hour on the hour during regular cemetery operations, and every half hour during the summer, there is a changing of the guard ceremony where a person or an organization lays a wreath at the tomb. Well, that's true, but they don't really walk the plaza. There is a short set route they take from the museum, and placing the wreath is part of a ceremony, whereas placing a single flower is a much more personal interaction. Sadly, Mrs. Ghosts of Arlington had to work, but I was able to go to the cemetery with my kids. It was a perfect day to be outside, clear skies and a high right around 70 degrees. We entered near the Old Post Chapel on Fort Myer and walked through Section 1. With COVID and everything else going on, it was the first time I had been to the cemetery in nearly two years, so... I made the obligatory pilgrimage to General Meggs and pointed out a few prominent graves we passed by, including Arthur MacArthur, Douglas's father, George Westinghouse, the electrical entrepreneur, Audie Murphy, the most decorated American soldier of all time, and John Glenn, the third American in space. The line to lay flowers stretched 180 degrees around the amphitheater, but moved quickly. Attendees were wearing all manner of uniforms. Current Army, Navy, Marine Corps, and Air Force were all out in force, though I believe the Army was the best represented while I was around. There were also plenty of partial Vietnam-era uniforms, JROTC cadets, Boy Scouts, and a guy wearing a fez, because any time is the right time to wear a fez. I chose to break out my cavalry Stetson, which I like to do on special occasions, and an active-duty Sergeant First Class, who I can only assume is a Cav Scout, emphatically approved of my choice of headgear. I overheard many conversations about people coming from all over to pay their respects, but the one that stuck out in my mind was a group not too far in front of us who had heard of the event and, spur of the moment, traveled with 12 kids from Kentucky to share the importance of this memorial and what it represents. For my part, I forced my kids to listen to episode 9 of the podcast on the drive to the cemetery and was very eagerly pointing out every little detail I could think of. As we neared our turn to walk the Tomb Plaza, I could see the Tomb Sentinels were still on patrol but they were marching behind the monument rather than in front of it. It is hard to explain exactly how I felt when I crossed the plaza. It was kind of a mixture of peace. I I always feel that when I'm at Arlington. Reverence, I consider the Tomb of the Unknowns one of the most sacred locations in the United States, and gratitude for the chance to share this opportunity with my children. We milled around the cemetery for a little while afterward. We visited the memorials to the Challenger and Columbia Space Shuttle Disasters. We saw the recently renovated USS Maine Memorial. Walked by the one German and two Italian World War II POWs interred in Section 15, and that is definitely a story for another time. And we paid our respects to James Parks, the former slave who stayed on to tend the cemetery grounds and dug many of the early graves there by hand. I want to give major props to the men and women of Arlington, the civilian employees, those in uniform, and the volunteers that put together this wonderful commemoration of 100 years of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, It was certainly a special occasion for me and my family, and I'm sure it was for the thousands of others who came over those two days. Back in Episode 9, I shared the story of the unknown World War I American soldiers brought back from France and interred in Arlington National Cemetery's now-famous shrine, commemorating all unidentified American service members. At the time, I said I wanted to do a future episode about the men specially selected to accompany the Unknown's body back from France and carry him throughout his transit of Washington, D.C. These men all survived the ordeal of World War I, so I figured that less than a week removed from Veterans Day, it was time to tell these veterans' stories. One soldier was selected in 1921 to choose the unknown set of remains to be returned to the United States, and eight veterans were selected to accompany him home. And because I will be sharing the story of nine individuals today, it's going to be a long episode. But because it's a Veterans Day special of sorts, I didn't want to break it up. So consider yourself warned, dear listener. I took most of today's details from Patrick K. O'Donnell's 2018 book, The Unknowns. I had a chance to pick up a signed copy of this book at the National Museum of the Marine Corps in Quantico, Virginia, a few years ago, and am still kind of kicking myself for passing on the opportunity. In The Unknowns, O'Donnell tells the story of American involvement in the First World War in chronological order. I'm going to follow that same format so some of the body bearers may appear more than once. I also think the term body bearer is a bit antiquated, so I am going to use the more modern term pallbearer. Oh, and I will issue the same trigger warning I gave back in episode 9. If you continue to listen, you will hear me butcher French location names.
1: Get your gun, get your gun, get your gun Take it on the run, on the run, on the run Hear them calling you and me Every son of liberty Hurry right away, no delay, go today Make your daddy glad to have had such a lad Tell your sweetheart not to fine To be proud, her boy's in line Over there, over there Send the word, send the word over there That the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming, the drum's rum coming everywhere. So prepare, say a prayer, send the word, send the word to beware. We'll be over, we're coming over, and we won't come back till it's over, over there.
0: As we discussed a few months ago, for reasons far beyond the scope of this podcast, the United States entered the Great War in April 1917 and quickly expanded a new U.S. Navy program that leased out gun crews to American commercial ships sailing in the Atlantic Ocean to provide some protection against German U-boats. On August 6, 1917, One such crew, commanded by future pallbearer and chief gunner's mate James Delaney, was on board the SS Campana, sailing across the Bay of Biscay from La Palle, France, to Huelva, Spain, when the German submarine U-61 surfaced and began firing on the Campana with its deck guns. It's a little-known fact, unless you happen to be a submarine aficionado, that World War I and World War II submarines were designed to primarily operate on the surface and were much faster and more maneuverable when surfaced than when submerged. After a three-hour surface pursuit, where the sub was able to shell the Campana while staying out of range of the steamer's smaller guns, her civilian captain, Alfred Oliver, gave the order to abandon ship. Once the four lifeboats entered the water, the U-61 pulled up alongside them, identified the captain and the military gun crew, expressed regret that the Americans had entered the war, took Oliver, Delaney, and four other members of the gun crew prisoner, and released the others to float off into the bay where they were eventually rescued. Chief Delaney and his four gunners were the first of 4,000 American prisoners to be taken by the Germans between August 1917 and November 1918. While the submarine remained on patrol, Delaney and the U-boat's captain, who spoke fluent English, had several conversations where each tried to get the other to reveal information that could be helpful to their respective sides' war efforts. On the evening of their capture, the Americans experienced firsthand the terrifying effect of being forced below the water and enduring a barrage of depth charges. The British ship that launched the depth charges were so sure they had sunk U-61 that Delaney and the other Americans were reported killed in action by the U.S. Navy and the men's families were given the bad news. Nine days after their capture, the Germans put into port with their American prisoners, who were still very much alive. Before being handed over to German authorities, the crew of the U-61 and their prisoners posed for a photograph. Seven months later, the U-61 was sunk by depth charges and all 36 of her crew were lost, but... It was just the beginning for Delaney, who was transferred to Germany, where the interrogations he experienced grew less friendly. From the time the U.S. entered World War I in April 1917, it took the American Expeditionary Forces nearly a year to build up its troop numbers train and equip these new recruits, and get them into the field. One of the first major American combat actions of the war took place in the early summer of 1918 on the rugged grounds of a centuries-old hunting preserve called the Bois de Belleau. More than a quarter century before June 6th became a hallowed day for the U.S. Army through its actions on the beaches of Normandy, June 6th entered into the Pantheon of Revered Dates in the History of the U.S. Marine Corps, also for actions in France. According to the National Museum of the Marine Corps, this first day of their participation in the eventual months-long battle for Belleau Wood saw more marine casualties than in the entirety of its 143-year history up to that point. When the Marines entered the line near Belleau Wood, an utterly exhausted and demoralized French force was fleeing before the advancing Germans, just 45 miles outside of Paris. Believing it to be a lost cause, the French urged their newly arrived reinforcements to withdraw with them. It was at this point that Marine Captain Lloyd Williams uttered the now iconic phrase in Corps history, Retreat? Hell, we just got here. One of the first actions on June 6, 1918, saw a Marine company miraculously seize Hill 142 from an overwhelmingly larger German force. Though suffering great losses, the Marines dug in the best they could and awaited the inevitable German counterattack. The Marines were alerted to the counterattack when future pallbearer and gunnery sergeant Ernest A. Jansen yelled and single-handedly charged a dozen German soldiers who had managed to sneak within 30 yards of the Marines' position with five machine guns. Janssen managed to kill the two senior members of the machine gun team and caused the others to run off, abandoning their guns. Janssen's commander, Captain George Hamilton, said that if Gunnery Sergeant Janssen hadn't seen the Germans and acted when he did, the remainder of his company would have been annihilated by close-range machine gun fire, and the hill would have been lost. For his efforts, Janssen was severely wounded and spent seven months in the hospital recovering. He also became the first American to receive the Medal of Honor in World War I. Because his regiment was attached to the U.S. Army's 2nd Division at the time, Jansen became the first of five marines to be awarded both the Navy and Army Medals of Honor during the war. Many historians have debated the overall importance of the Battle of Belleau Wood. While the woods themselves may not have been tactically important, the battle marks what many see as the emergence of the modern marine corps and it put a halt to the most promising german offensive since the early days of the great war the american expeditionary forces did not rest on its laurels but continued to press the germans back to the hindenburg line In July 1918, in what the Europeans called the Second Battle of the Marne, but Americans referred to as the Battle of Soissons, the effective employment of a creeping artillery barrage supported American troops as they advanced toward the German positions. Artillery had not been used to support the initial attacks on Belleau Wood and had been sorely missed. Soissons had all the hallmarks of World War I combat, machine gun bullets swarming like deadly mosquitoes, toxic gas searing human tissue, artillery shrapnel raining death from above, and many terrifying accounts of hand-to-hand combat. In short, it perfectly resembled Civil War General William T. Sherman's observation that war is hell. While there have been debates about the importance of the Battle of Belleau Wood, most agree that Soissons was the turning point of the war. Through June and July 1918, the German Imperial Army had continued to counterattack and bring the fight to the Americans, after the latter made gains on the battlefield. Soissons rocked the Germans and put them on the defensive and reinvigorated the Americans, British, and French allies on the Western Front. On August 8, 1918, after several American, British, and French advances, German discipline cracked and units fled the field in an event later dubbed the Black Day of the German Army by its commander. Future pallbearer and color sergeant James Dell played a key role in that two-month battle manning several French-built 75 millimeter artillery pieces supporting infantry advances throughout. Not long after the Americans' entry into World War I, the U.S. abandoned its practice of putting those small gun crews on shipping steamers and began running large convoys with dozens of warships to fight off submarine attacks. While this tactic was effective, it was not foolproof. On September 5, 1918, after making its 8th Transatlantic Crossing, the USS Mount Vernon was returning stateside with hundreds of combat wounded and Spanish influenza infected passengers when it was hit amidships by a torpedo from the German submarine U eighty two. Future pallbearer and chief water tender Charles Leo O'Connor worked in the bowels of the Mount Vernon, shoveling coal to feed the fires and tending the boiler of the ship's number eight fire room the torpedo struck devastatingly close to O'Connor and his sailors. Taken directly from the book The Unknowns by Patrick O'Donnell, the author says, O'Connor fell to the deck, instantly enveloped and almost fatally burned in the flame and gases driven from the furnaces. A shower of scalding coal dust and debris rained down on his head, scorching his body as the searing heat burned his throat and lungs. Before he could catch his breath, a torrent of seawater rushed into the compartment. O'Connor's chances of survival were slim. Far below the waterline, the fire room was a death trap. At any second, the remaining intact boilers of the Mount Vernon could explode. With the sea flooding in, the water tender had limited time to make his way to safety. Tongues of flame still flickered in parts of the room but rather than escape, he immediately set about doing whatever he could to save the ship. Staggering in the swirling water, he struggled to his feet and turned to close a watertight door leading to a large coal bunker behind him. Thanks to O'Connor's efforts and those of the rest of the crew, the Mount Vernon was able to limp the 250 miles back to France. Afterward, several of the ship's officers, including the captain, singled out O'Connor's efforts. Taking time to close the watertight door resulted in painful injuries and scars which O'Connor would bear for the rest of his life. However, this self-sacrifice very likely saved the ship and the lives of his fellow crew members. Defying all odds, Connor survived his wounds and was recommended by his captain for the Medal of Honor. He was eventually awarded the Distinguished Service Medal. Speaking of sailors, let's check back in with Chief James Delaney, who by this time has been in a POW camp for more than a year. While the other pallbearers faced their personal hell on the battlefield at Belleau Wood in Soissons, Delaney's hell took place in a prisoner of war camp. Delaney, his four captive gunners, and their civilian captain were transferred to a POW camp called Brandenburg, home to more than 10,000 Allied prisoners of war. The Germans did inform the U.S. government that these men had actually survived, but the relief their families felt back home about their survival was not shared by the captives. This camp, like many others in Germany, was made up of 30 by 150 foot wooden shacks, crammed with 250 men each and given straw or sawdust beds to sleep on. The prisoners were given a small coat and wooden shoes to wear and fed meager rations. Delaney later said that all their U.S. currency was taken from them, but they were given German money in exchange and none of their jewelry was taken. Hundreds of prisoners in this camp, primarily Russians, died of starvation. More would have likely shared that fate if not for the American Red Cross relief parcels that reached the prisoners though never unpilfered by the camp guards. The prisoners worked 13-hour days of hard labor and were only allowed to bathe once every two weeks, creating filthy living conditions that bred disease. The only medical treatment in the camp came by way of British Red Cross doctors, but they were not allowed to bring medical supplies. All they could do was allow the ill to rest and hope they would recover many died. The winter of 1917 to 1918 was particularly brutal for the men with little to no protection from the cold and cases of pneumonia ran high. The Germans guarding the camp didn't have it much better than their prisoners. This allowed the Red Cross packages that did get through to become part of a thriving black market. Delaney attempted to escape four times by bribing guards to look the other way, but he was caught each time. After each failed escape attempt, he was put on bread-and-water rations for 14 days. Despite their willingness to trade, the guards treated the prisoners harshly. Delaney later said, If you failed to work fast enough, you ran chances of being shot or bayoneted. This occurred to French, Russian, and a few English prisoners. One American civilian was beaten senseless by a guard. Delaney and his men feared for their lives, but allied offensives on the Western Front would soon change their fate. Following the American victories in Bellawood and Soissons, General Pershing set his eyes on an area that had been a thorn in the Allies' side since the beginning of the war. In 1914, the Germans pushed toward the French town of Saint-Michel during the First Battle of the Marne and created a bulge shaped like an arrowhead, which they used in 1916 to attack Verdun. Pershing wanted to take the Saint-Michel salient. Overall Allied Commander, French Field Marshal Ferdinand Foch wanted to break up the American Army piecemeal and spread the still largely green troops throughout the more experienced French and British forces. This was the very thing Pershing was ordered by President Wilson not to do before he left for Europe. The American forces must fight as an American army. As a compromise. Foch agreed to allow Pershing to try to take the Saint Michel salient, but he only had two weeks to carry out the operation, and then the Americans needed to be ready to support Foch's plan to attack the Meuse Argonne. For an attack on Saint Michel to succeed, the incredible amount of barbed wire in no man's land had to be cleared. The wire could be obliterated with a days-long artillery barrage, but that would alert the Germans to the attack and eliminate the element of surprise Pershing needed. Tanks could also be used, but there were only so many of the new machines available and they could only clear small portions of the battlefield. For the most part, this wire would be cleared by volunteer four-man teams of combat engineers, who would go into no man's land and cut the wire by hand. Two men would work the wire cutters, followed by a third man with an axe to chop down the wooden fence posts supporting the wires, and a fourth to bring up the rear and swipe the cut wire aside, clearing a pathway for the troops following behind them. This type of mission was considered forlorn hope, or what we would call a suicide mission today. One such four-man team included future pallbearer Corporal Thomas Saunders, a Cheyenne Indian and one of approximately 10,000 Native Americans, to volunteer for service in the U.S. military at a time when such natives were not considered American citizens by birth. The morning of September 12, 1918 was dark and gray as Corporal Saunders and Private Alfred Wilkerson and other such teams along the salient crept forward through no man's land, clipping wire, and advancing at a steady pace toward the German position. As the two men became visible in the dim morning light, German machine guns and snipers began firing at the pair. By 5 a.m., the roar and flash of hundreds of Allied guns, including future pallbearer James Dell's 75s, opened up on the Germans, taking some of the pressure off the wire cutters. Yards behind Corporal Saunders, the rest of the 9th Regiment, 2nd Infantry Division, were also crossing no man's land. By noon, the 9th Regiment had seized its objective, the city of Tiukor. From there, the 9th pushed out small patrols further north and northeast. With the wire now cleared, Corporal Saunders led one of these patrols to the village of Jalmi. By far the largest building in town was the Chateau Jolny, which the Germans had seized and turned into a hospital and barracks. Braving artillery and sniper fire, Saunders and Private Wilkerson rushed towards the chateau, dodging trenches, foxholes, and machine gun nests as they ran. They dashed into a dugout to avoid the incoming fire, found eight Germans inside, and promptly took them prisoner. By this point, the Germans were in full retreat, but they had left a rearguard to cover the withdrawal, and it was this rearguard that was harassing Saunders and Wilkinson. The two Americans cautiously entered the chateau and found a medieval interior, a maze of twisting hallways and passages that provided enemy soldiers with perfect ambush spots. Room by room, the two cleared the main building and ended up taking an astonishing 63 prisoners. Over the course of four days, the American 1st, 2nd, and 26th Divisions took 15,000 German prisoners and dissolved the Saint-Michel salient, which had stood for four years. For his efforts at Chateau Jolny, Saunders was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, the Valor award second only to the Medal of Honor. The American army had proven its mettle in battle, and talk of splitting the army up among the French and British quickly died down. There was no time to rest on these laurels, either. Pershing had committed to another major offensive in the Meuse-Argonne, and had only two weeks to move his massive army 50 miles to be in position for that attack. In a miracle of logistics, the army did just that, moving 500,000 soldiers... 2,000 guns, and 900,000 tons of ammunition, mostly at night to keep the Germans guessing where the next attack would be. The Meuse-Argonne offensive proved to be the largest and second deadliest campaign in American history. It was initially hoped that Allied forces would be able to attack the best-defended portion of the Western Front, link up behind the defenders, and force them to either withdraw or be cut off from the rest of the German army. Like most operations in World War I that depended on quick movement, things bogged down, and instead of a quick, decisive campaign, it would last 47 days from September 26th through the armistice on November 11th, and cost tens of thousands of lives in addition to hundreds of thousands of wounded. It was this grand Allied offensive that would finally bring about the end of the First World War. Just after midnight on September 26th, a massive 1,200-gun artillery barrage opened up on the German positions in the Argonne Forest. The Germans expected an attack somewhere in the region, but the scale of the assault took them completely by surprise. At 5.30 in the morning, the first wave of Allied forces went over the top, heading for the German line. Untested American troops would soon be pitted against the most battle-hardened force in the world. One of the divisions entering combat for the first time was the 91st, better known as the Wild West Division. And modeling itself on Theodore Roosevelt's Rough Riders of the Spanish-American War, the 91st was made up of farmers, loggers, ranchers, cowboys, and other volunteers from the nine western states and Alaskan territory who prided themselves on self-reliance and rugged individualism. Though these cavalry troopers would fight dismounted, the impracticality of soldiers on horseback charging machine guns having been shown in the early days of the Great War, their Wild West spirit remained. One member of the 91st who went over the top that morning was future pallbearer, 1st Sergeant Harry Taylor, a 15-year Army veteran. The artillery had done its job, and Taylor and the rest of the wild westerners encountered no resistance while moving through two miles of forest. More than an hour after leaving their trenches, they got their first real taste of combat when machine guns opened up on the doughboys. The 91st silenced the guns and pressed on, though over the course of the next three days, they suffered heavy losses in an area they dubbed Death Valley. They finally drove the Germans out, but it took much longer than planned, and delays all along the line caused commanders to realize this was not going to be the quick offensive originally envisioned. The next objective for the 91st was the heavily fortified stronghold of Genet, and the order to take it was a suicide mission. To get to Genet, 1st Sergeant Taylor and the Wild West Division would have to cross an open field covered by Germans with double infilating machine gun fire. This means the Americans would not only be taking fire from the position directly in front of them, but from both flanks as well. Almost as soon as they stepped off, a runner arrived with new orders to cancel the attack, but it was too late. In the face of devastating fire and high casualties, Taylor and the others who did make it to Genet also managed to drive the Germans out, but they were ordered to abandon the city and move back to their original position. Why? Well, the division next to them had been driven back by the Germans, and now the Wild Westerners were at risk of being cut off and surrounded. As they made their way back across the open ground, the realization set in that the attack and all the death and horror associated with it had been for nothing. Within the first few minutes of the charge, the division of around 10,000 soldiers suffered 50% casualties. By the time they returned to their original starting point, only a handful of survivors filled out the division's companies, which started the day with about 200 soldiers each. In one company, only 18 of its original 179 remained. Just before returning to the original starting position, 1st Sergeant Taylor was shot in the leg. He would recover, but for him, the war was over. The observers of this debacle had little time to reflect on the tragedy, though. Many were soon ordered to join the French army farther north in Champagne to help with another forlorn attack on another seemingly impregnable German force, Blancmont. During World War I, a Marine was placed in command of an army division. It is the only time in U.S. history this has happened. The specific division was the 2nd Infantry Division, And the specific Marine was Major General John A. Lejeune, who today has a post in North Carolina named after him. General Lejeune was given a seemingly impossible task. The Germans had built a fortress at Blancmont. Hundreds of machine gun nests, an intricate maze of trenches, concrete bunkhouses, artillery pieces, and tangled masses of barbed wire awaited anyone foolish enough to attack the position seen as the key to all German defenses in the sector. For years, the French army had thrown itself against these defenses time and time again with only blood and a large body count to show for it. When asked if his men could take it, Lejeune said yes without hesitation and was then ordered to do just that. The 2nd Division was about to enter one of the most perilous kill zones on the Western Front. If they survived, the men would link up on the crest of the hill. On October 3rd, 1918, the heavy guns and field artillery of future pallbearer, Color Sergeant James Dell's 15th Artillery Regiment opened up in a rolling barrage, trying to provide the advancing American troops with some protection. The shells dropped in front of the advancing infantry at a fixed rate, creeping ahead while the assault pushed forward with the hope of destroying enemy emplacements. Counter-battery fire from the Germans was intense, and the 15th paid a heavy price for its support of friendly infantry. One of the men participating in the attack on the White Mountain was the man who would select the unknown soldier, Sergeant Ernest Younger who went over the top with Company A, 1st Battalion, 9th Regiment. His company was devastated by German artillery, but he managed to press on. The advance stalled when the company ran into enemy machine guns until New York Private Frank Bart grabbed a Chachot, the notoriously unreliable French light machine gun, and single-handedly wiped out two machine gun nests, earning the Medal of Honor in the process. Behind Private Bart, Sergeant Younger, and the rest of Company A continued to advance, despite their losses. Nearing the important town of St. Etienne, Sergeant Younger was hit in the thigh with a round from a Maxim machine gun. The wound landed the Chicago native in a field hospital for weeks, but he would eventually make a full recovery. Most of Company A would not be so lucky. After Sergeant Younger was evacuated from the field, the American 2nd Division kept advancing, but the supporting French unit was unable to keep pace. Since the French were pinned down, the Germans focused an all-out attack on the Second's flank in an attempt to crush the division. By this time, the American forces had been fighting for 24 hours without food or water. In desperation, they scavenged the dead for their canteens while the Germans mercilessly counterattacked, shelled, and gassed them. Against all odds, the second pushed forward and positioned themselves in a salient that provided some protection to their flanks and rear. The teeth of the German defenses at Saint-Étienne lay in front of them, over a mile of rising open ground in the distance. The next morning, the soldiers and marines of the 2nd Infantry Division began to cross the open ground, but the casualties were appalling. At one point, the Germans got in behind the advancing marines. Unable to fall back, one account says the marines began their slow, inexorable climb up the ridge, even as their closest friends were falling around them. It was a day none of them would ever forget and a day they could never fully describe to anyone who hadn't been there. As their numbers dwindled by the second, the marines reached the German lines. Hand-to-hand fighting took the place of machine gun and rifle fire, and bayonets clashed as the men killed each other in the most personal of ways. The marines persisted, but the situation grew untenable. Unable to advance farther and taking fire from all four sides, The remaining Marines gathered their wounded, dug in at a small copse of trees, and hoped reinforcements would make it to them before they were annihilated. George Hamilton, who had been future pallbearer Gunnery Sergeant Jansen's company commander back at Bella Wood and was recently promoted to major, was leading this beleaguered battalion down to around 150 men from an original strength of 1,000 just the day before. The story of the 1st Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment, is harrowing, but hardly unique. Up and down the line, the advance was held up. At 6.30 a.m. on October 8th, five days after the start of the attack on Blancmont, future pallbearer Corporal Thomas Saunders, the Cheyenne combat engineer we've already seen in action, once again volunteered to venture out into no man's land immediately in front of Saint-Étienne. Braving fire and, again, armed with only wire cutters, Saunders and his engineers cleared a path through the thick web of German barbed wire. He then made a night patrol to conduct reconnaissance before leading an attack. Saunders' sergeant major later wrote, Such heroism is understood by a man's comrades more than can be explained in writing, as during times of stress the one who does what Saunders did does it not with the thought of self, but only of carrying out, to the best of his ability, what he believes his duty to be. In my close contacts during and since the World War with Saunders, I can state that everything he does is a bit better and with more energy than other men. For his service in this combat patrol, Corporal Saunders received the Croix de Guerre, This, combined with his previously received Distinguished Service Cross and other accolades, made him one of the most decorated American Indians of World War I. Several days of hard fighting remained, but in the end, Saint-Étienne and the rest of Blancmont were in American hands. French Field Marshal Pétain said the taking of the mountain by the 2nd Division was the single greatest achievement of the 1918 campaign. Blancmont was just one part of the Meuse-Argonne campaign, the final large-scale campaign of the war that stretched over the entire Western Front. The early days of this fight were some of the darkest in U.S. Army history. After some initial early success, stiff resistance slowly ground the offensive to a halt, which took away the element of surprise and gave the Germans time to reinforce their positions. The American attack began to take on the same ominous tones as the failed Allied campaigns of 1916 and 1917, and it looked as though the war would inevitably drag on into 1919. To break the stalemate, American Expeditionary Forces Commander General Pershing began throwing every division he had into the fight, both veterans and newly arrived Green Troops. One such division was the 5th. The 5th Division was relatively new, but it had some very veteran troops in it, including future pallbearer 1st Lieutenant Samuel Woodfill. When one thinks of veteran soldiers, a 1st Lieutenant, who today would typically have around four years of military service, doesn't usually come to mind. Lieutenant Woodfill was not a typical junior officer. He enlisted in 1901 and had already served in the military for 16 years. He saw combat over three years in the Philippine-American War and along the border with Mexico. It was only when the U.S. entered World War I and the army needed more officers that he was commissioned. After spending some time along a quiet sector of the front, Woodfill and his men entered the fray two weeks into the Meuse-Argonne Offensive with Company M of the 60th Infantry Regiment. The woods were simply covered with rotting horses, dead men, human hands and feet, Shoes half-filled with flesh and bones, blood, mud, filth, and stench, Woodfill later remembered. Their mission was to relieve the 319th Infantry, which had been holding the line south of a town called Cunel. As Company M neared, the Germans opened up on the 319th with rifles and machine guns. Woodfill and his comrades, who would have to cross an open expanse to get to the 319th, hoped the Germans wouldn't notice them approaching, but they did, and the fire soon shifted toward the newly arriving troops. The men dove for what cover they could find. Woodfill landed in a trench barely a foot deep. Laying as flat as he could, he got his entire body below the lip of the depression, but just barely. Plunk! A bullet sunk into my backpack, Woodfill recalled. Then two more ripped through it. Then a hail of them sprayed the ground hardly two feet from my head, kicking dirt all over me. He didn't even have room to bring up his rifle to defend himself and felt it was only a matter of time before he would be killed. Such thoughts seemed to be confirmed when German artillery began falling among the group. One of the first shells landed close enough to shower him with dirt. He chanced the smallest of movements— Pulled out a picture of his wife, and on the back wrote her address and what he thought would be his final words. In case of accident or death, it is my last and fondest desire that the finder of my remains please do me a last and ever so lasting favor. Please forward this picture to my darling wife, and tell her that I have fallen on the field of battle and departed to a better land which knows no sorrow and feels no pain. I will prepare a place and be waiting at the Golden Gate of Heaven for the arrival of my darling Blossom. But, in his despair, Woodfill had forgotten about the 319th, who came to the aid of Company M and drove the Germans from the field. Amazingly, none of Woodfill's men had been killed. That night, Woodfill led three nighttime patrols in a downpour, drawing German artillery fire each time. On the third trip out, he remembered... There was a clap of thunder right in the tree over my head. Then I passed out. The next thing I knew, there was rain beaten in my face. I lay there, sort of fumbling around in my mind, wondering who I was and where and why. But after checking himself over, he found no wound worse than a bloody nose, and, from the sounds of it, likely a concussion. The rain continued for several days, making life miserable for Woodfill and his men. Every foxhole had standing water in it, and Woodfill said, I discovered that if I lay on one side long enough without moving, the water inside my clothes would begin to feel warm, and then I'd drop off for a few winks. If you get tired enough, you can sleep anywhere, even with a few hundred cooties keeping you company. Being able to sleep anywhere is something soldiers still take pride in today. In Afghanistan, I spent an entire year with my cot less than 200 yards from three 155mm howitzers. After the first week or two, I slept through nighttime fire missions with no problem. At 6am on October 12th, Woodfill got the word to move out through a vast blanket of fog that had descended in the woods in front of him. The veteran soldier knew the coming fight would be fierce. While the fog screened their advance through the trees, it cleared away as they reached an open field. The first man killed was standing right next to Woodfill. Half a dozen more went down before taking another step. Unable to see where the fire was coming from, the Americans dropped to the ground and began crawling toward the sound of the machine guns. German artillery also began falling among the group. In Woodfill's own words... The only thing to do was to find out where the first machine gun was and get it. And I don't believe in asking any of my men to do something I wouldn't do myself. So he motioned for his men to stay put, and he made a mad dash for the woods on the far side of the clearing. During the dash, he remembered, There was a rain of bullets so close I could feel the heat of them on my face. After taking cover in a shell hole, he came to find out that the fire wasn't coming from a single place, but from three. An abandoned stable to his right, from the woods in front, and from a church tower to his left. The church tower presented the best target from his position, and though he couldn't see the gunner, he fired where he thought the gunner would be, and that machine gun fell silent. Next he turned toward the stable. Again, He couldn't see the gunner, but he could see where someone had removed a board to get a clear line of fire. Taking careful aim, he fired through the hole, and while he couldn't see the actual result of his shot, that machine gun fell silent too. With two guns eliminated, he moved up to the next shell hole and dove in just as bullets passed where he had been standing feigning death, Woodfill waited for the final machine gun to move on to other targets and move to yet another shell hole, one that happened to have mustard gas in it. Instead of turning back for treatment, he decided to press on, but was now too weak to run, so he crawled out of the contaminated hole and slowly, painfully slowly, advanced toward where he thought the third gun was, hoping he would eventually see it. When he was about 40 yards away, the sun shone through the clouds and reflected off the machine gunner's helmet. Finally able to see his target, Woodfill took aim once more and fired. The gunner fell, but he was not alone, and another German quickly took over. He took a second shot, and this one also found its mark. Four times a dead gunner was pulled away from the gun by a man who took his place, and each time, I pulled the trigger of my rifle before he could open fire, Woodfill later said. The third and fourth ones must have known what to expect. That was nerve, to take their places knowing they would be picked off. It was just a sample of the way the German army fought. A fifth man in the position did not feel as brave. He attempted to crawl off, but Woodfill dropped him too. With his rifle now out of ammunition, a sixth man took over the machine gun. Woodfield drew his pistol and eliminated that threat as well. By this time, Woodfield's men had started to move up as well. After reloading his rifle, the recently gassed lieutenant jumped up, yelled for his men to follow, and immediately stumbled over a seventh German, this one still alive. The German jumped to his feet, grabbed Woodfield's rifle, threw it away, and both men reached for their pistols. If his Luger had been in his hand instead of his holster, he could have gotten. I snatched my pistol from my belt and fired. I got him in the body, and he doubled up with a grunt and dropped. The German's rank indicated he was an Oberlieutenant, the same rank as Woodville. The American tore the rank insignia off the German officer's collar, grabbed the Luger, and moved on. The fight was far from over. Woodfill had taken out three machine guns on his own, but there were many more in the surrounding woods. The next machine gun Woodfill came upon ended up like the last, with Woodfill dropping five would-be gunners in succession. As Woodfill approached that now silent gun, he won another pistol shootout with another German officer. A second German now rushed forward, and Woodfill's pistol jammed. Looking around for anything to defend himself with, Woodfield grabbed a pick the Germans had been using to dig a trench and won that encounter as well. The Germans seemed to finally be retreating, except they really weren't. Company M was now surrounded. Soon they were taking fire from all sides and firing back whenever they were presented with a target. Finally receiving orders to withdraw, the survivors of Company M fought their way back to their original position, only to be pinned down by heavy artillery fire and more gas until reinforcements arrived. In the final barrage, Woodfield took shrapnel to the leg and was finally knocked out of the fight. When he made it behind Allied lines, suffering searing pain from the gas exposure and the shrapnel in his leg, Woodfill reported to a senior officer who asked the lieutenant what he had been doing to the Germans. Downplaying his contribution, the LT remarked, I got a few. On a cool day in early November 1918, future pallbearer 1st Sergeant Louis Razga of Battery D, 58th Coastal Artillery Corps, A 31-year-old veteran with nearly a decade of service began shelling enemy lines. A Hungarian immigrant, he was fluent in German, Bohemian, Polish, Slavic, and, of course, his native Hungarian. This made him a huge asset on the battlefield. Although they were a defensive force manning batteries along the American coast, many coastal artillery units were sent to Europe to augment field artillery forces, Razga's guns saw their first action of the war on October 31st, being called to the front to support a new offensive planned to begin on November 13th. Infantry at the front faced a lot of sitting around and waiting, interrupted by infrequent moments of attack, violence, and terror. Artillery crews, on the other hand, were in near-constant movement. While the infantry would spend weeks or months at the front, gun crews typically served four-day rotations before rotating back to the rear for a break. During the days of action, there was little or no rest for officers and men manning artillery pieces. Many of them went more than 36 hours without a moment of sleep. The men spared neither themselves nor their equipment in carrying out the heavy firing program that was laid down for some batteries. In addition, these crews faced near-constant enemy counter-battery fire and airplanes trying to knock out the big guns from the sky. The attack on November 13th that 1st Sergeant Razga's battery was supposed to support never happened. The armistice to end the war went into effect on November 11th. Razga was not at the front to witness the eerie calm fall over the battlefield. Two days before, on November 9th, Louis Razga had been gassed. On November 11th, he was under constant observation in a field hospital, fighting for his life. World War I was brought to a formal conclusion on June 28th, 1919, with the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. The final members of the U.S. occupation force in Germany remained until January 24th, 1923, when the U.S. Army withdrew from the Rhine River. As the war wound down, a few of the future pallbearers managed to make it through the fighting relatively unscathed. Artillerymen, Color Sergeant James Dell and Combat Engineer Corporal Thomas Saunders, were actively engaged with the enemy right up to the minute the armistice went into effect. Wounded six months prior in Bella Wood, Gunnery Sergeant Ernest Jansen, who would soon receive the Medal of Honor for his actions, was able to return to his company and march with his men into Germany as they began their occupation duty. Chief Watertender Charles O'Connor spent nearly a month in sickbay, recovering from the severe burns received when the USS Mount Vernon was torpedoed. He soon returned to duty on the Mount Vernon and helped transport some of the tens of thousands of troops that would soon be returning from Europe. Chief Gunner's mate, James Delaney, had lost a significant portion of his body weight by the time he was liberated from the German POW camp. Despite the harsh conditions, Delaney and all the men taken prisoner with him survived. Conditions changed drastically after the armistice was signed. The Social Democratic Party that had taken power with the abdication of the Kaiser on November ninth forced the guards at the POW camp to relinquish their swords and remove their rank. The prisoners were promised they would be sent home as soon as possible. It took nearly a month, but on December 8th, the 34 American prisoners at the Brandenburg camp were released. Delaney was soon back in the States, assigned to recruiting duty while he recovered. Lieutenant Samuel Woodfill recovered from the effects of the toxic gas and shrapnel during his heroic charge, and was able to march into Luxembourg for occupation duty with the rest of the 60th Infantry Regiment, 5th Infantry Division. In recognition of his service, Woodfill was presented the Medal of Honor and promoted to captain, but the promotion didn't last long. He was soon demoted back to sergeant, his rank before the Great War. This sort of nonchalant bureaucratic downsizing of the army became typical of the time. Many soldiers who had received a promotion in the wartime army had to accept a reduction in rank if they wanted to remain in the much smaller peacetime force. The first time future pallbearers Woodfill and Jansen would meet was at the ceremony where they and 15 others were awarded the Medal of Honor by General Pershing. While a small occupation force remained in Europe, by 1920 the majority of the American expeditionary forces had returned home and many mustered out of service, trying to get on with their lives. The world around them was transforming. Many monarchies, especially in Europe, ceased to exist. National borders were redrawn around the world. The United States, after a short economic recession from 1919 to 1920, was entering the Roaring Twenties. On November 11, 1920, France and the UK both interred unknown soldiers at national shrines. Shortly thereafter, several other European countries followed suit. In 1921, it was decided that the U.S. would do the same, and preparations for that ceremony began. Secretary of War John W. Weeks sent out a call to each branch of the military asking them to submit the names of five active-duty warrant or non-commissioned officers to act as pallbearers for the unknown soldier. These men were to represent the finest the American military had to offer, both in their appearance and in their actions on the field. The various branches culled through thousands of citations and selected hundreds of candidates. The final selections were made by General Pershing himself, who knew several of the men personally. In the end, Pershing felt the collective stories of Samuel Woodfill, Thomas Saunders, James Dell, Harry Taylor, James Delaney, Charles O'Connor, Louis Rasga, and Ernest Jansen told the untellable tale of the American experience in World War I. The soldier chosen to select the unknown soldier from four candidates was Sergeant Edward Younger. After recovering from his leg wound on Mont Blanc, Sergeant Younger returned to the 9th Infantry and served in the occupation force for a time. After returning to the United States, Sergeant Younger re-enlisted at Camp Travis, Texas, and returned to occupation duty in Europe, this time with the 50th Infantry Division. It was while serving in this capacity that he was selected for this solemn assignment. The night before the choosing ceremony, Younger said he felt a haunting restlessness different from anything he had ever known before. He and those who would become the eight pallbearers were just informed they would play special roles during the next day's event. They went to bed knowing one of them would choose the unknown soldier, but wouldn't find out who until the next day. When Younger was told it would be him, he was completely overwhelmed. I had gone over the top many times, had known the agony of waiting for the charge, but nothing had paralyzed me as that simple announcement did. At 11 o'clock on the dot, the French military band struck up Chopin's funeral march and Younger entered the room with the four candidates alone. He said, It was dim inside, the only light filtering in through small windows. For a moment, I hesitated and said a prayer, inaudible, inarticulate, yet real. Then I looked around. The scene will stay with me forever. Each casket was draped with a beautiful American flag. Never before had the flag seemed to have such sublime significance and beauty. About the wall were other flags, American and French. Flower petals had been scattered over the floor, and outside I could hear the band playing a hymn. Younger circled the four caskets once, twice, three times. I was numb. I couldn't choose. Then something drew me to the coffin second to my right on entering. I couldn't take another step it seemed as if God raised my hand and guided me as I placed the roses on that casket. This, then, was to be America's unknown soldier, and by that simple act, I started him on his road to destiny. The rest of the unknown story was already covered in Ghosts of Arlington, episode 9, but I do want to wrap up today with a little about the pallbearers' post-war lives. Sergeant Edward Younger, the man who chose the unknown soldier, received an honorable discharge from the Army on October 29, 1922. He returned to his native Chicago, married Agnes Anna Wasco in 1923, and the two raised a son and a daughter. He worked as a post office foreman and joined the American Legion. In 1930, a Washington Post reporter tracked him down. Younger told the reporter that no one had ever asked about his role in the selection, except for one post office co-worker. Younger also said he had not yet been to Arlington to see the tomb. He had wanted to go for some time, but on his salary, a trip to the nation's capital was cost prohibitive. On Memorial Day 1930, the Washington Post paid for Younger to finally make the trip. At Arlington, he reenacted the selection ceremony by placing roses on the tomb. The Post wrote an article about the trip and focused on Younger's humble nature and relative obscurity since selecting the unknown. Younger also conveyed the intensely emotional aspect of the selection. Fifteen years after the selection, he authored a candid first person account I Chose the Unknown Soldier. Which appeared on November 8, 1936, in newspapers around America. He was invited to speak to various civic and veterans groups throughout the 1930s. Edward Younger passed away on August 6, 1942, of a heart attack. He was 44 years old. He was buried in what was at the time referred to as the World War I section of Arlington National Cemetery, Section 18 grave 1918-B, a humble sergeant who did his duty in war and peace. Former POW chief gunner's mate James Delaney retired from the Navy in 1933, but served again in World War II. After that war, he returned to Beverly, Massachusetts, where he lived with his wife, Eleanor. He died of lung cancer just days after Christmas in 1954. Bella Wood hero, Gunnery Sergeant Ernest Jansen remained in the Marine Corps and worked for several years as a recruiter. He retired in 1926 as a sergeant major. A native New Yorker, he moved to Long Island after retiring and died just four years later of an embolism at age 49. He is buried in Evergreen Cemetery in Brooklyn. Field Artillery Color Sergeant James Dell spent 32 years in the Army before retiring as a Master Sergeant. He continued to serve his country, working as the superintendent of several national cemeteries in Kentucky, Nebraska, and Texas. His first wife, Pauline, died in 1948, and he later married Viola Browning Height. He died in Florida in 1967 at age 91 and is buried in that state in St. Augustine National Cemetery. Combat engineer Corporal Thomas Saunders seemed to have faded from history. He spent some time in San Antonio, Texas while fellow pallbearer James Dell was living there, but little else is known of his life. The Native American hero died in 1947 at age 55 and is buried in the Golden Gate National Cemetery near San Francisco, California. Little is also known of chief water tender Charles O'Connor's activities after the war. His headstone in Arlington, Section 17, Grave 22, 633, simply says he was from Massachusetts served in the Navy Reserve, and died in 1934 at age 47. All I could find out about cavalry trooper and member of the Wild West Division, 1st Sergeant Henry Taylor, is that he stayed in the Army until at least 1927. He and his wife Millie had four children. I don't know when he passed away or where he was buried. Sergeant Samuel Woodfill, the one-time captain who was reduced back to his pre-war rank so that he could serve in the post-war army, retired from the army in 1932 and returned to Fort Thomas, Kentucky with his wife Lorena, where the couple bought a farm. He became something of a local celebrity, complete with an elementary school named after him, but he struggled financially with farm-related debt piling up. When World War II began, Woodfill answered the call to serve again and was commissioned a major, a rank he was allowed to keep this time, and became an instructor. He retired for good in 1944 and moved to a farm in Indiana. He died of natural causes in 1951 at age 68. He was initially buried in Indiana, but his remains were eventually transferred to Arlington National Cemetery where he rests today in Section 34, Grave 642. And finally, Coastal Artillerist Louis Razga. He was promoted to Master Sergeant and served a total of 30 years in the Coastal Artillery Corps. Razga retired in 1935 and moved to Delaware with his wife and two daughters. Putting his military skills to good use, he worked for a time as a guard for the prominent DuPont family that lived nearby. His daughter Eleanor shared his enthusiasm for military life and became an army nurse in World War II. In 1941, at age 52, Razga volunteered to serve in World War II, but was told he would have to sit that one out. He was in great physical condition and was desirous to serve anywhere and in any capacity where the five foreign languages he spoke could come in handy, but much to his disappointment, he was never given the chance. After his first wife died, he remarried and later moved to Florida, where he died in 1959 at age 69. He is buried in Longwood Cemetery in southeastern Pennsylvania. The one thing that Sergeant Younger and the pallbearers had in common is that they were average everyday people who were thrust into extraordinary circumstances. They didn't see anything that they had done as heroic they were simply doing their duty and trying to not be the reason someone fighting alongside them was killed. Many of them, particularly Younger and Woodfill, were quite uncomfortable with the notoriety their service to the unknown soldier had brought, but it was just one more sacrifice to add to the many others that had come before in the service of their country. One hundred years later, their stories are still inspirational and I was very happy to see signs with their pictures honoring their service all around the Memorial Amphitheater at Arlington this week, so that those coming to lay flowers at the Tomb of the Unknowns could also learn a little about those who brought that first unknown home.
1: Johnny, get your gun, get your gun, get your gun. Johnny, show the hun you're a son of a gun. Hoist the flag and let her fly. Yankee, do, them, do, do or die. Pack your little kids, show your grit, do your bit. Yankee to the ranks from the towns and the tanks. Make your mother prouder. And the old red, white, and blue. Over there, over there. Send the word, send the word over there. That the eggs are coming, the eggs are coming. The drum, drum, coming everywhere. So prepare.
0: If you need more Ghosts of Arlington content in your life, there are photographs and additional information about every episode on the website, www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com. Ghosts of Arlington is also on Facebook and Twitter, and links to those sites are in the show notes. As always, I encourage you to leave a 5-star rating on iTunes or wherever you stream the show from as that helps others find the podcast. If you really want to make my day, refer the show to a friend. And remember, fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal.